want to invite you all to Easter Sunday. We want to invite you all to invite your mama and them, your cousins and them, as I say, from where I'm from. We want you to invite everyone. This is the time where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the pinnacle of our faith. Without the resurrection, you have no Christianity. And so we're going to be doing that uh, for Easter Sunday. We want you all to invite everyone. We also are going to be uh, having an Easter egg hunt on um, the 9th. Uh, April 9th, and so we want you all to come out and enjoy that as well. Bring your family and um, and enjoy that with the neighborhood as well. All right, we made it to the end. This is the last installment of the Acts series, and so we are now in Acts 28, and so as is our tradition, we ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading... Chapter 28, verses 21 through 31. You can follow along with the text behind me. Luke writes, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known... To you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we ask that you will animate our hearts. Spirit, will you do a work in our lives through your word? We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. Well, let's get it. We have started a long journey, and now we're at the end of that journey. And as we're talking about Easter, that's exactly what starts this series. The occasion of Easter starts the book of Acts. The fact that a man died that everyone seen and then rose from the dead and showed himself to several hundred people. So that's how you now have the book of Acts and we're ending in a very peculiar place. It's ironic that, that uh, Luke ends this book with Paul just kind of just hanging out for two years sharing his faith. You know, you ask Paul, well, I'm reading this thing. I'm like, okay, man, what happened to my brother? You know, did he make it to Caesar? Did he do it? Where is Paul? What's going on? And, and he says that, listen, you can hear the Spirit say, listen, I've ended this exactly where I wanted to end it. 
We know from history that Paul does eventually make it to Rome. I mean, excuse me, for, uh, to Caesar. We know from history that Paul was beheaded when he, when he presented his faith before Caesar. He was actually beheaded in Rome. We know that from history. But Luke is not concerned with that right now. Luke is concerned with what is Paul doing. And what we find Paul doing is he's doing the same thing that he's been doing ever since he's been changed by the truth of the gospel all the way back in chapter 9. This brother has not stopped all the way. This is over two decades later. This brother has not stopped doing this one thing that we see Luke showing Paul doing. Sharing his faith. Preaching the gospel. Trying to get people and introduce people to who Jesus is. When you read this, you get this energy from Paul and you're looking and I sometimes get tired when I read it. Where does this come from? You're so excited, brother. Where do you, where does this motivation come from? And you know this motivation is coming from the fact that Paul was transformed. It comes from transformation. It comes from adoration. It comes from desperation because he wants people to know Jesus. He wants people to know Jesus. It comes from transformation because Paul knows that, listen, I am not the same person I was. I'm not where I, I'm not where I used to be. This ain't the Paul that you knew uh, prior to chapter 9 of, verse, of, uh, of Acts. See, when you look at me, this ain't the James that used to be. You're not looking at the same James. See, God transformed my heart, and I know we can say the same about the people in this room, that God changed you. This is the motivator. See, Paul, he's transformed, and he does it out of a place of adoration. He's thankful. He's convinced, and he's thankful. And out of that motivation, out of that energy, he wants to share his faith. But it's also a desperation to it. It's a desperation to it. We see this when he is trying to give the gospel to Jews, to fellow Jews. What does he do? Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he says this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. He says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is Paul saying right there? If I can just take what I got and give it to you, if that was even possible, then that's what I will do. I want to just... Give it to you. Say, Paul, brother, how do you do that? How do you have so much energy? Because the point is, when most of us hear this, you know what we're tempted to feel? Like, oh, man, I'm tempted to think about all the places I get it wrong. I don't do all that. But it's something that comes so natural to us, the sharing the things that that is very important to us. Why is it that every time we experience something good, we want to share it with somebody? Every single time, when we got a, everybody got that thing that they want other people to experience. Look, I got the favorite. If you want, to, if you want Korean food, this is where you go for Korean food. If, if you want to go to a, a stylist, you need to go to my stylist. You know, you need to go to my barber because he gets you high and tight. Okay. If, if if you want to go to a doctor, listen. You go to my doctor. He he listens to you. She listens to you. She doesn't try to push prescriptions on you. You you, want to share it with people. Why is it that you want to share it with people? Because you want people to share in your joy that you're experiencing. This is Paul's motivation right here. I I just want you to share in the joy that I'm experiencing. I'm still messed up from the song, Lord, I don't know how you did it, but you did it. 
when I look, about, look at my family and I said, listen, they, you know me as Jimmy. You know I'm changed. But there's so many people in my family. I say that I just want you to have what I have. I wish you had what I had. See, this comes most. You feel it most. You feel the weight of it with people that you know personally. Now, how this brother did it with people that he didn't even know is beyond us. It's the spirit that does this. But we know that this brother just wants people to come to Christ. What does he want? He wants to take them to Christ. If I can just get you to Christ, I can't always explain why. I can't always explain with eloquent, eloquent arguments why. But as my brother Pascal said, he says that, listen, the heart has reasons that the mind knows not. I don't always know, but I know in my heart that, listen, if you would just come to the Lord, and I think about my brothers and my cousins even right now as I preach to you. So what I want to do, what you get, this is a picture of Luke. It's kind of like a snow globe. It's kind of shaken up. And we see Paul just kind of frozen in time. And you see Paul, what is he doing? He's doing what he's always been doing since Acts 29. He's sharing his faith. So what I want to do is I want to talk to us today about how can we share our faith? We talked about sharing our stories and how that is very important with testimonies. But today we're going to say that how do we share our faith? You know, most people in the room, if we were honest, we don't like to share our faith. Why don't we like to share our faith? Sometimes it's because of fear. I'm not going to have all the right arguments. They may trump me on something. I can't even understand. I can't even rebut what they're saying. Sometimes it's apathy. But most of the time I will bet that it's fear. So hopefully we get to get some tools today as to how do you share your faith? So I want us to put, get ready to put our thinking caps on. This is not going to be a shouter, but it's going to be a thinker. And we're going to look at some tools as to how do we engage with people? How do we share our faith? How do we do what our brother Paul has exemplified for us for most of his Christian, for all of his Christian life and certainly most of his life? And so the first thing I want to look at is that let's follow the example of Paul. Let's see what he does in sharing his faith. Now, Paul, when he's now he's in Rome, we know that they've just experienced shipwreck. We know that they've been on the, the island of Malta. And then we know that after they experience, uh, after the season lets up, they now make it to Rome. And what's the first thing Paul does? I, I need to see my peoples. I, I need to see the fellow Jews. Let's go to the Jews and let's talk. So Paul goes to the Jews, and what is he trying to do? He's trying to convince the Jews that, listen, this Jesus was the expected Messiah. This Jesus was the one, the true hope of Israel that we've been waiting for for such a long time. That's what he's trying to convince them of. And when we look at that, we theologians today, we can say that, listen, we count over 300 over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament. That's the confidence that I want to give you today, and that's the confidence that Scripture gives us over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfills that lets us know that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is the true Messiah. You can hear Paul talking with his brothers. He's like, come on, brother. What do you do with this? Sound like me talking to my barber. Bro, what do you do with what I'm giving you? You got to do something with it. You can try to avoid it, but you got to do something with it. You see, Paul, that's like, brothers, Jews, what do you do with this? The fact that the scripture says that the Messiah must be born at Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. Was Jesus not born in Bethlehem? 
Brothers, what do you do with the fact that the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah? Is he not from the tribe of Judah as, ex- as explained in Genesis 49 verse 10? You see him going back and, and, and flipping through scriptures with them and, or scrolls with them and they say, that, listen, what do you do with the fact that the Messiah would present himself riding on a donkey? Does he not do that on Monday of Holy Week? Riding in town on the donkey. Palms being laid before him as people are screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. If I'm not mistaken, Scripture says that this man will be tortured, tortured to death. And you scoff at him and say that, no, he cannot be the Messiah because he died a criminal's death. No, Psalm 22, 1 through 31 says the exact opposite. What do you do with the fact that, that, you, that we're looking at the Messiah and the Messiah would, uh, would match up particular fine details saying that, hey, the Messiah, he would suffer. And he would suffer in silence, and he would uh, at his arrest, and he would experience a trial, and that he would die, and that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. What do you do with that, my fellow Jewish brother? It says that some of them believed it, and then several of them did not believe. You, you get the sense that Paul has this holy frustration. Listen, I don't know what else to tell you, fam. I don't know what else to tell you to convince you. You're denying the obvious. This is quite obvious. Jesus, look at all of these prophecies. What do you make of it? And so he pronounces judgment over them. What does he do? He says, listen, it was right. Isaiah was right concerning you. Isaiah said that, listen, you're going to plug up your spiritual ears. You're going to cover up your eyes. You're going to just deliberately deny that which is obvious before you. You're going to do that. And because this is the case, we got to go to the Gentiles. It's a picture of a person who wakes up and says, I can't see. I can't see. He moves around and he's uh, falling about and he says, I can't see. And he works, makes his way down the steps and he finds a wife and he says, listen, I can't see. And she says, open your eyes, man. And he says, no, I will not. Paul says that they're deliberately closing their eyes. They're deliberately doing this. And so he says that I will now go to the Gentiles. But he says that I will go to the Gentiles and they will listen. Is that not the question before us today? Has everyone in this room, has every person under the sound of my voice, have you all listened? Have you listened to the evidence set before you? Have you listened or will you listen to the evidence that will be set before you? Have you listened? And so as we share our faith, it's always good to start with Scripture, but we need to know that Paul actually does not start with Scripture when he's dealing with unbelievers or dealing with Gentiles. So our first principle today is as we are sharing our faith, let's follow Paul's um, example and let's start where Paul started. Where did Paul start? He started with creation. When he's at Morris Hill, when he's at Areopagus, when he's talking to the Areopagite, He's starting with that which is most obvious to them, that which is most present before them. And all you have to do is turn one page over and you can see Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 19 says what? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul starts with creation. And I get the sense that, listen, when Paul is, if, if Paul was born 19 centuries later, it would probably sound a little bit like this. See, when, when we're sharing our faith with people, you can do it in a list of questions. You're not trying to trap people. You want to get people to think. You can simply ask questions. You can ask the question, have you considered the galaxy? Have you considered the world in which we occupy? Have you considered the moon, the stars? Have you considered the, the majesty of the heavens? Have you considered these things? It's always a great question. Did you know that you have to have five constants working all at the same time, all in the same way in order for this thing to work? Did you know that you have to have the gravitational force constant, an electromagnetic force constant, a strong nuclear force constant, a weak nuclear force constant, and a cosmological constant. You ask, preacher, well, what that mean? Just look it up and Google it. Oh, yeah, I thought I was going to break it down. No, I'm not going to break it down for you. Listen, listen, listen. This is that all these things have to be working together. What does it mean? If the earth was just a little bit tilted this way, the earth would not exist. If the gravitational pull was a little weaker, moons and stars could not form. If it was a little stronger, they would obliterate. It has to be just perfect. There has to be fine-tuning involved. It reminds me of every single night when I put my son to bed, we cut the radio on, and I'm always amazed by why, who changed the station because it's hard to get the station on the right, say, uh, the right channel. Move it and move it and move it and stepping away, then it works, and then stepping closer, then it doesn't work. I woe out, my son wakes me back up, daddy, the radio's not working. Stop touching the radio. I love you, baby. Don't touch the radio, please. There is fine-tuning involved with the creation. There is fine-tuning, and then there must be something that holds it together that operates as a force on it. Scientists have no idea what this is and how it all works. They just know it is. See, they go short, they come up short every time, and I mean this in love. Every time you try to explain the creation or explain things, that somehow you have a victory because you're able to explain what it is. Can you explain why it is? How it came to be? That's what we see today, but, but how does it all stick together? How do this, does the, the atoms and the nuclei, how does it all stick together? Well, brothers and sisters, I believe that we are staring Jesus directly in the face with this question. We're reminded from Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, what does it say? For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Can we brag about Jesus for a second this morning? It says, in he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things to himself whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
This is the Jesus that we celebrate this morning. Why is this important? Why would I take this opportunity to talk about all of this hitty stuff? Listen, let me tell you something. What does this have to do with my anxieties? What does this have to do with me trying to make it from check to check? What does this have to do with me trying to just get a handle on my child that continues just to run all over the place? Listen, if I'm a believer, I need to know and be reminded that this God has my back. The God that created all things and does it in such an intricate way. When we say once again that I don't know how you did it, but you did it. I don't know how you did it. That's the God that I say that, Lord, I serve. I worship this God, the God of all gods. And so when I'm faced with my trials in life, when I'm faced with tribulations, I can always fall back and remind myself of who it is that I serve. Who it is that takes me by the right hand as I go through the valley and go through valley experiences. This is this God. And sometimes we need to be amazed about God's bigness. So we see that we can even share this with people through talking about big realities as we see with the universe. And there are some people that are going to say that, listen, man, I don't, I don't know how to wrap my mind around all that. That's okay. I got something else for you. You can, you can, stall, you can go with smaller realities. You can ask questions regarding smaller realities. Consider the eye. Oh, yeah, I know it's getting deep up in there. Consider the eye. Steve Jobs, Mac computer, Apple, IBM, nothing, nothing has anything on the eye. It is the most complex, complicated mechanism that ever, organism that exists in this planet. Our atheist friends, they don't know what to do with this. Agnostics really don't know what to do with this. Charles Darwin himself doesn't know what to do with it. It's great. It's powerful. Okay, let me share this with you. The human eye is truly an amazing phenomenon. Although accounting for just one four thousandth of an adult's weight, it is the medium which processes some 80% of the information received by its owner from the outside world. The tiny retina contains about 130 million rod-shaped cells which detect light intensity and transmit impulses to the visual cortex of the brain by means of some 1 million nerve fibers, while nearly 6 million cone-shaped cells do the same job, but respond specifically to color variation. The eyes can handle 500,000 messages simultaneously and are kept clear by ducts producing just the right amount of fluid with which the lids clean both eyes simultaneously in one five thousand of a second. Woo. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's your eye. That's your eye. I ain't never seen a million of nothing, certainly not in my bank account. Listen, all this says that this is some complicated stuff and it's real and God made it in, intricately, in an intricate way. Charles Darwin did not know what to do with this. Listen, he actually admits that this may be a silver bullet for us. Y'all think I'm lying, okay. I'm going to read this quote. Listen, this is what he said himself. He says that, to suppose that the eye, with all its intimate controversies for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by a natural sec uh, selection, my theory seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest sense. That's 
That's, that's Charles Darwin himself. I don't know what to do with this. Are you encouraged in this place? Are you encouraged in this place that God, the God that, that makes sure that your eye works with all the millions of stuff going on within it is the God who sees you through your valley? Are you encouraged by this that the God who, who, who confounds the person who says there is no God? Are you, are you encouraged by the fact that this God is the one that says that, listen, you're serving me. We need to be reminded of the bigness of God. Listen, you can go with large realities. You can go with small realities and series of questions. And you can also go with comical realities. Did he just say comical? I did say comical. I talked with my barber. And I do this with my barber. I ask questions to my barber to get him to think. All right, to get him thinking. My barber, he said, told me that, James, you are, you are God, man, and, and you can transport anywhere you want to at any given time. I said, really? Can you do that? He said, yeah. He said, see, I'm, I'm in France right now. Okay, all right, all right. I'm not going to argue with you. But, but, but here's the question I asked him, and you can ask the same question. Things like this. What came first, the chicken or the egg? That's comical. Did you know that that was actually a, a huge debate even to this day? What came first, the chicken or the egg? It's a problem for folks that don't understand, for any of us who believe that it just kind of came. Well, what's the problem, preacher? The problem is that if the chicken came first, you got to ask the question, well, where did it come from? One. Two, well, that will be the last chicken on the, on the planet Earth because it can lay eggs, but what's going to happen? How can you need a rooster to fertilize the egg in order for it to keep on going? Okay. If the egg came first, well, all you have is some scrambled eggs because you need a rooster to fertilize the egg in order for it to grow and keep on going. Why is this important? Because we don't know what to do with these realities other than read what's in Scripture. Scripture settles this issue for us. How do we know that? It says that, look, look here. God made the chicken and the rooster. Stop, stop hating on the rooster. The rooster, if you don't know, is the male version of the chicken. Let's bring the rooster back in here. God made the chicken and the rooster, and he put them together that they may reproduce after one another. Case closed. Pretty soft, pretty easy, right? God provides these answers, and these are good questions to get people wrestling. I watched a DVD, and I was able to watch Ray Comfort ask some of these questions at a campus and watch people just really wrestle with this. The first question was, are you an atheist? They said, yes, 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 yes. By the end of asking these questions, are you an atheist? They said, no, I'm not an atheist. You can also look at yourself. You can also look at the uniqueness of humanity. How do we, why do we do that? We can look at the fact that we have morality and beauty. The fact that we're drawn to beauty, have you thought about that? There's no other animal that's drawn to beauty. I don't know of any monkeys that's painting Picasso's work, painting Van Gogh. When, my, when, I'm, when we used to have our dog, our boxer, Rex, when we see the, the sunset, he never said, Bro, that's, that's a pretty good sunset right there. Dogs don't do, no, we say that type of stuff. Why? Because that's the stuff of humanness. We are unique. We are uniquely designed by a creator, by a God who loves us. When he asked the question, Ray Comfort, to the folks, when he says, are you an atheist? And then by the end of the interview, they said, 
no, I believe there is a God. He said, well, well, will you take the leap of believing that God wants to know you? They said, no. You should be empowered today knowing that you can share your faith. And it's not because, listen, you don't have anything to be afraid of. People don't not believe because it's unconvincing. People didn't want to start believing because that meant that they had to stop doing. You have all of the tools. We have all of the tools we need to share our faith and have great confidence that God will use that. God will use the, the, the feeble efforts of us just asking people simple questions. This is what we see Paul doing. This is his life. This is the way that Luke ends this book. Paul, frozen in time, sharing his faith. So the invitation for us this morning is that if you are a believer, will you do what we see here in verse 30? Verse 30 tells us that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. If God presents opportunities for you to share your faith and there's no hindrance there, will you do it? Will you seek to create relationships with people that you may want to befriend them and love them? Love them as you love, their, as you love yourself, as the second great, greatest commandment instructs us to. But will you pursue people in order to share your faith with them? And listen, some of us, in order to get to this point of being animated and getting back to a certain place of wanting to share our faith, sometimes this is not about feeling, by the way. Sometimes we need to invest in stuff. We need to invest in DVDs. We need to hear big truths like this. We need to be reminded of who God is. Unbeliever, will you listen? Paul is very confident that the Gentile will listen. And for 2,000 years, the Gentile has listened. Will you listen? Will you believe the fact? Will you press into it? Will you converse with it and wrestle with it, but believe that this God who created the earth, he wants to know you and be personally involved in you, with you. And the only way to do that is through his son. This is the means by which, this is the vehicle by which you can be brought to the Father, your creator. Will you believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life? Will you believe that if you would just simply confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and was raised from the dead, that you shall be saved? That is the invitation for you. Here's the beauty about all of this. Listen, it's not our efforts to save people. God uses it, but only the work of God can save people, not eloquent arguments, not questions. They're good tools. And we know that because of what God has done in our life. Was it a simple argument in my life? No. No. I don't know how to explain it. But he did it. And I'm reminded of what he did every Sunday. We all are reminded of what he did every Sunday when we gather. We gather in remembrance of what Christ did for the believer. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, and gave thanks, said that this is my body broken for you. He says, take and eat it. Likewise, Jesus took the cup 
and poured and said that this is my blood, the blood of my new covenant. Take and drink. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So, believer, we have the opportunity today to sup on the mercies that Christ provides us. Rest on it. Rest on what the Lord has done in your heart as we pray and think through more on how to share our faith. The way that we do it here is the wine is marked by twine. The juice is not. We ask that you do, do whatever your conscience permits, and gluten-free options is going to be right here in the corner to my left. Come when you're ready. Let's pray.